If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John 13. When I was, uh, when I was younger, there were two things more than anything else that, that really freaked me out. One was aliens. Uh, the thought that aliens would land in my backyard, I hated that thought. I had fireflies in the backyard. I had to run past the picture window every night when I, if I had to go to the bathroom, it was a pure sprint. Um, I hated that, and, and I, I was freaked out by them. And the other thing were these prophecies of the end of the world, just the thought that uh, the History Channel would run these documentaries or these fake histories where experts would get on and talk about how the world was going to end according to this religion or that religion. And, and some people like hot peppers. They, they like hot peppers because it, it creates pain for them, and that pain means that they release endorphins, and so they like it all the more. I, was, I hated these shows. They kept me up at night, but I couldn't stop watching them. I was consumed by them. And one of the guys who... who annoyed me and, and I was afraid of the most was this guy named Nostradamus. I mean, even his name is pretty awesome, Nostradamus. It's not like Fred the Prophesier or anything like that. He's got, a, he's got this nice name. And uh, in 19, or not in 19, but in 1555, he made up a, a series of about 900 quatrains that people think predicted events that were going to happen in the future, events from the assassinations of the Kennedys or of Lincoln uh, through the 9-11 or the rise of Hitler in Germany and in Europe. Um, they think that they do this because of the nature of the poetry. So I'll read you one that uh, many people think is a sign that Hitler was going to rise. And this is what Nostradamus wrote back in 1555. Beasts ferocious with hunger will cross the rivers. The greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister, not, not Hitler, Hister. In a cage of iron will the great one be drawn when the child of Germany observes nothing. Now, other than the word Hister, if you listen to that and you thought, well, that's nothing but word salad, you're not terribly far off. Those, those words have almost no meaning, and they're so poetic if you even want to, it's just bad poetry, but if you want to think of it as poetry, there's really nothing to pull from it. I mean, ferocious beasts with ferocious hunger will cross the rivers. And it's not explaining to us what those beasts are. We have no idea who this Hissler guy is. And if, if, by the way, you're going to prophesy something, you can't misspell names. That, that's rule number one. If you're going to say Hitler, you have to say Hitler. You can't say Hissler and say like, eh, that was close. It doesn't work like that. So, and, and truth be told, the name Hissler is just the Latin word for the river Danube. It's not even about Hitler. But people still posit this stuff as though this is prophesying what's going to happen in the future. All of his prophecies are like this. They're all very vague and general. And because of that, people can tie them to almost any of a number of events. Now, there's a lot of people who think that that is kind of precisely what's going on with Jesus and a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament and even what Jesus says in the New Testament. And even if they're more exact there's still ways to deny the prophetic nature of what Jesus says. So, for instance, if we were to look at something like Matthew 20, verses 18 through 19, Jesus talks about his, his coming crucifixion, and he says, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. If we were going to be skeptical, you could look at that and say, well, from the very beginning, once Jesus made his way onto the scene, he's done nothing but annoy the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And he keeps poking them in the face, and he keeps poking them in the face, and, and they, they seem antagonistic to him from the very beginning, and he just doesn't stop. And so if he's going to go over to Jerusalem, it's been known for a while, in John's gospel especially, that they've wanted to arrest him. It makes perfectly good sense that someone would turn him over to them, 
And if they're honestly trying to kill him, which again is known from the beginning, well, the Jews can't just kill him. They would have to turn him over to the Gentiles. And if the Gentiles were then going to kill him, they would likely do it through crucifixion. So honestly, it all makes good sense. All Jesus has to do in order to make this prophecy come true is to keep poking the bear and poking the bear and poking the bear until the bear bites him. Now, in order for all that to be true, we've got to ignore his next prophecy was that he would be raised on the third day, which seems a little bit harder to overcome, but let's ignore that for the time being. And think that maybe, maybe, this is the way that all prophecies work. What we get today is a way of showing that Jesus knows what's going to happen in the future and that Jesus has control over what happens in the future. Not by some general way of speaking, not by poetic utterances, but by a very sovereign and truthful look at what will happen in the future and an overarching control of what that is. Let us read John 13, verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought it was because Judas had the money bag. So Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he went out immediately. And it was night. And it was night. Jesus here is dealing with events that will happen in the future. And because he's dealing with events that are happening in the future, there is something of the unknown here, not to him, but to the disciples. Immediately as our passage starts out, we hear that Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and therefore he testified. He testified by being troubled in his spirit. One can imagine if Jesus himself is troubled in spirit, what the disciples were going to feel when all of this darkness and all of the anger and all of the hatred of Judas and the people who surrounded him would come down upon Jesus and seemingly overwhelm him. If any man should have confidence before his death, it's Jesus. If any man should have boldness before those who would condemn him, it would be Jesus. If any man thought that he had a righteous standing before God, it would be Jesus. And yet here Jesus is facing death and he's troubled in his soul. His soul is, is stirred up. John doesn't even give us a reason why. We don't know. But Jesus, I think, because he is stirred up in his soul, is trying to give solace not only to the disciples, but even the fact that his soul is stirred up during these things ought to be solace to us. Augustine says this, Whether therefore on this occasion he was troubled, if it was by his pity for Judas himself, thus rushing into ruin, or by the near approach of his own death, yet there is no possibility of doubting that it was not through any infirmity of mind, but in the fullness of power that he was troubled. And so, no despair of salvation need to arise in our minds when we are troubled, 
not in the possession of power, but in the midst of our weakness. I mean, what Augustine means by this is, if there is no fault in Jesus, no, no trace of, of impropriety, no trace of doubt, no trace of anything but perfect and abiding, obedient faith, and yet facing death, he is troubled in his spirit. When we do the same, when we quaver at the thought of, of death, when we tremble at the thought of death, we shouldn't take this as a sign that our, our salvation is for naught, that, that we have forfeited it. If Jesus did it with all of his power, then certainly God would allow us to tremble at our own deaths in front of our weaknesses. Jesus is meaning for this to be a comfort, and what he is going to say is indeed meaning to comfort his disciples, knowing what they are going to go through, just as much as what he is going to go through. He seeks to comfort them with a small but brief peek at the future. Let us think through that, and first thing that we're going to think through is the fact that Jesus knows the coming dark. Jesus knows the coming dark. He knows precisely what is going to happen. This doesn't catch him by surprise. And to see this, the best thing to do is probably to look at how much the disciples didn't know. At this time, the disciples were with one another somewhere around three years. We don't have exact numbers, but three Passovers Jesus went to somewhere around three years, which is interesting because I have been at this church somewhere around three years. I've been here for about three and a half years. I know some of you very well. During that time, I've spent a lot of time with you. I've spent meals with you. We've had times of prayer and conversation with one another. Some of you I know better than others. Some of you didn't arrive and weren't here for the full three and a half years. Uh, but I, I know some of you very, very well. And I know you well enough to, to think that I know where your faith is strong, to know that you truly do believe in Jesus Christ and that you, you firmly will run through all of the difficulties of life with him at your side. I know also what you struggle with. And some of you think the same of me. You've been with me for three and a half years and you know where my faith is. You know perhaps what I struggle with. Realize, even as much as you might think you know me and I might think I know you, how much more these disciples would have known one another. For three, three and a half years, they ate the same meals. They saw the exact same miracles. They talked to one another about Jesus. They talked to themselves about what he was doing. They talked to themselves about what he was saying, about how confused he made them by how excited they were for the kingdom. They slept near one another. They faced the same dangers as one another, sometimes real and true and great dangers. And they had the same hopes for this coming kingdom. They would have known one another intimately, side by side, for three and a half years, never leaving one another. And yet, here, they, they knew nothing. They had no suspects. It's true that John has something of 2020 hindsight when he looks back in chapter 12, for instance, and he, he notices that this ointment that was broken should have been sold, or Judas thinks that it should have been sold because he wanted to steal some of the money. So there's some hindsight there, but it's just hindsight. No one looks around at Judas. Notice how he puts it in verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. I'm going to tell you what. When there is the last cookie gone from our house, or the last piece of candy, or the last cake, no one in my family looks around to see who might have taken it. They all look directly at me. Not one of them, not one of them ever looks at their mom. And then they appeal to her, Dad took the last one. Honestly, I think I'm being set up. Like, she's got the perfect crime here. She steals it, and they're going to come to her, and she's going to be like, yeah, it was probably your dad, right? So, I mean, she's not even here this morning to defend herself, but let's face it. So, 
Mom would never do it, they say. Mom doesn't ever do it, they say. All of those eyes go to me because I have somewhat of a history of taking the last of food. But no one, none of these disciples had their eyes trained over to Judas. They didn't all go to him. It's not like he was always kind of the odd guy out or he was always one who wasn't firm in his faith and they kind of knew that this guy's a little shaky or he's a little rough on the edges. Their eyes didn't go anywhere. They kind of seemed to be darting all over the place. They could have easily looked at Thomas and said, this Thomas guy, he's just always doubting. He's always doubting. Nothing's ever good enough for him. They've always got to have so much evidence put before him. Maybe he's just sick of it and he's going to give it up. Or maybe it's Peter. Maybe Peter's one upbraiding away from just cashing in on everything, and he's just sick of it. Jesus is always coming down hardest on him. Maybe it's one of those guys who's kind of in the middle of the disciples who thinks he should be better and higher up. He should be with Peter and John, but he's not really there, and he's just sick of being overlooked. Maybe it's Nathaniel or Philip. One thing that we do know is that Peter clearly didn't think it was John because he looks at John and he tells him, ask him. Even afterwards, no one understands. It seems fairly ominous For them to say, for Jesus to look up and say, one of you is going to betray me. And then for him to look at another disciple and say, hey, whatever you're going to do, go do it quickly. And him get up and walk out and they all go, huh, I wonder where Judas is going. Must be going to sell something, right? Like even that doesn't click with them. They're so oblivious to who Judas is that they have no clue what's going on. Should be a sobering reminder of how much we don't know. We believe that there are certain people in this congregation who are very mature, and I pray that they are. But we don't know. We think that they are close with the Lord, but we don't know. We think that they know Jesus Christ and they spend their days praying and, and being fed by the word and being lifted up in the faith, but we, we simply don't know. And it's a reminder for us to pray, not just for those people that we think that we think can be better, not just for those people who are somewhat more immature than us, that that God might bring them along, but it's also that we might pray for those who we consider to be much more mature than us because we don't know. But what's more than that? Jesus does know. John privately asks him who it is. Jesus makes it very clear. It is the one to whom I'm going to hand this piece of bread. And he hands it to Judas. And immediately for John, maybe no one else, but John knows precisely who it is. What everyone else might have missed, Jesus clearly knew. We might be unable to see what truly lies in someone's heart, but Jesus can see even into the darkest region of our souls and even into the darkest regions of our minds. He knows about the coming dark. He sees it growing in Judas and knows the festering evil that lies within him. We sit in ignorance, but we serve one who knows all things before they ever happen. This is not a good guess. Jesus isn't putting this together because he's seen evidences here and there and he's he's compiling all these with some clever inferences like he's some sort of ancient Sherlock Holmes. That's not what's going on. He knows because he knows the heart of Judas. He knows because he knows what will happen in the future. This is something more than just a good observation or a good guess. This is seeing into the interior of a man and knowing what is inside of him and knowing what he will do. It's important that you realize that Jesus knows the coming dark, but secondly, that he rules the coming dark. 
He gives to Judas this morsel of bread and something odd happens. In verse 27, we're told that Satan enters into him. Whereas before, Satan was simply pouring into him thoughts and ideas about betraying Jesus, about treachery against Jesus. Now, we have something that seems more like full and total possession, that Judas is now under the control of Satan and will therefore do his bidding. I want to be very clear about something. John is not trying to mitigate the responsibility that Judas has for his actions. It's clear that scripture, John, Jesus, everyone holds Judas responsible for what he does. This is clearly seen because he continually calls him the one who will betray Jesus. He he doesn't say, well, he was really just the puppet who betrayed Jesus. But he truly believes it was Judas who betrayed Jesus. The Gospels show this to be true. The other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, clearly put a lot of emphasis on Judas's responsibility. But John has a different idea. What John wants to do is focus on something else, not taking away from Judas's responsibility, but making sure that he sees what goes on behind the scenes is more than just Judas choosing to reject Jesus. He is, as we would say, both victim and victimizer. He is both sinned against and sinner. He is both led astray and willingly led astray. Unbelief is not simply a choice that people of the world make. It is, and they are responsible for it, but it's not just that. It is also something that Satan clearly pressures them into. When Paul, again, being pressed by the Corinthians as to why your ministry isn't more successful, why aren't there more converts, why aren't more people coming to know the Lord, if you're such a massive apostle and God has set you aside so that the Gentiles might be brought in through you, why is that not happening more? Paul says, yeah, yeah, my my gospel is veiled. But if it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, he says in 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. He says that Satan himself works at blinding people. Satan himself works along with their unbelief to keep them from coming to know Jesus Christ. Why don't more believe, Paul? He says very clearly they're blinded by the God of this world. And John focuses on this, not because he wants to minimize, to mitigate, to reduce the guilt of Judas, but more than that, to demonstrate the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over the whole affair. We're not given an outright statement by John that this was Jesus' will, but I think it's hard not to come to the conclusion that the giving of the morsel of bread was an allowance of Satan to enter into Judas. John has been at pains to show that Jesus is in full control of every situation that he walks into. There is never a county, there's never a country, there's never a people, there's never a situation that Jesus walks into that he doesn't know everything that he needs to know about it and is in full control of everything that happens. This is what John means when he says in 1018 that Jesus lays down his life. No one takes it from me, Jesus says. No one takes it from me. Judas doesn't. Satan doesn't. The authorities don't. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He doesn't just foresee his death. He orchestrates his death. One is reminded of Job. That incredibly weird passage at the beginning where Satan comes before the Lord and the Lord says, Have you considered Job my servant? And Satan gives all these reasons why Job is faithful. But if if you take some of those things away, 
he won't be, and God allows him to. First, you can't take away you can't take away his health, and then second, you can't take away his life. But God allows him to. It seems to be precisely what Jesus is doing here. That's backed up, I think, by John seventeen twelve, where Jesus, in praying to the Father, says, "While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled." He kept them. And he held them. It was Jesus who held them close. And if one of them got away, it was only because Jesus intended for him to. This isn't just the work of Satan. Jesus has ordained and allows even this. As for the picture of the bread, it is a reminder of the passage of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says, whoever eats The bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Jesus earlier in this passage, or not in our passage, but earlier in this night, would have instituted the Lord's Supper. It's clear that Judas eats that supper and he eats this bread, not out of faith, but out of malice. He eats unworthily and seeks the destruction of Jesus' flesh through eating, and therefore he eats himself into judgment. So let's make sure we're clear about the importance of what's going on here. It is necessary to see God through Jesus as not just seeing the future, although he does that, but Jesus controls the future. He shapes the future. He makes the future into what it is. Let's be honest. Let's grant Nostradamus exactly what people grant him. He saw the rise of Hitler. What good is that? Did that stop Hitler's rise? Did it stop the assassination of JFK? Did it stop the assassination of Lincoln? Did it stop 9-11? It did nothing. Seeing the future is worthless. Such prophecies are simply telling us what our fate is without giving us any power or control over that fate. It simply tells you what is coming at you, telling you that there is a bus that is going to hit you and cementing your feet in place so that it does. But that is not what Jesus does. He doesn't just look down the corridor of time and say, c'est la vie, what will be will be. What God has ordained will happen. He says, I will control it. I will shape it. It will be according to my will and my whims and my desires. What comfort otherwise would people have? Why do people want a God who is not in control of all things? Why do they want a God who can sympathize with them, but is completely and utterly unable to manufacture an end that is worthy of their suffering? I can be that person to you. I can be the person who says, I'm sorry that you're going through all of this bad stuff and I certainly didn't want it to happen, but I really couldn't make it not happen. I don't have that control. People who don't want a God who is in control want a God who is no more powerful than the person sitting next to you. And indeed, I would tell you there is absolutely no comfort in that. Better to have a God who will lead you through dark, deep valleys for your good and simply have you trust that it's good and have you trust that he is the one who is shaping those valleys and and minding your path through those valleys as he sees fit 
Better to have one who knows what is happening and has orchestrated it for your good than to have one who simply can sympathize with you and say, oh, oops, I'm so sorry. This is made all the more comforting because not just Jesus being the orchestrator of the dark, but he is also the one who overcomes it. So our third point is Jesus overcomes the coming dark. John finishes this section of text with that, again, very ominous, it was night. Night and dark are the epitome of faithlessness and evil in John's gospel. They are signs of wickedness and rampant unbelief. And Jesus now enters into a time where he is in the full throw of them. It means that Satan, who is now released, gets to go unleashed in his full fury and to take out that fury on Jesus himself. And Jesus will face this dark. He will face the wickedness. He will face the hatred of the world. He will face their unbelief. And he will overcome it. This is no less than the center of the gospel that John has proclaimed from the very beginning. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus will have the world turn against him. His enemies will be unleashed. The disciples will vanish. And he will overcome He will face beatings and mockings, torture and death, and he will overcome them. Hell itself will wear itself out, and he will overcome. Repeatedly, Jesus will take everything that can happen to him, the bleakest and the blackest of nights, and he will overcome it. The question as we read the rest of the gospel, is not so much that he does it, but why he does it. And I would tell you, friend, he doesn't do it for himself. He is very God of very God, light of light. He came from glory. He is going back to glory. This little swoop down in the middle from glory to glory is not for himself. It is for us. He overcomes the darkness not because he had to, but because he chose to. So that you and I would be free from the same darkness that envelops us, that surrounds us daily. We wobble and fall in the darkness. We fail to see because the light isn't in us, so we stumble. We lose our sense of direction. We don't know what is right and we don't know what is wrong. We don't know what is good. We don't know what is bad. And oftentimes, it is so dark that we can't possibly even imagine that there is light there. But he has overcome. This is why we trust in Christ. Because he's overcome all of that darkness. The darkness of the grave, the darkness of evil, the darkness of our sin. He has triumphed over them all, and he has freed us from them all. He has undone the the very payment that was deserved for our sins that we should have paid. Jesus Christ has taken that away. He has triumphed over death and over disease for you. He has undone all of the evil in the world. And this is why we gather to worship him, even today. And that is indeed something we should talk about, even today. Many churches have had to close. Many people, viruses are nasty things. War you can see coming. Asteroids, well, you probably couldn't see those coming, but you could for a brief, brief second, right? But, but viruses you don't, you don't see coming. And it, it's easy to be tempted into thinking that this is now something that could get out of control, especially if you're somebody who is 
prone to listen to the more exaggerated of things that might be out there. So what are we to make of Jesus and this virus, of coronavirus or COVID-19, whatever you want to call of it? I'll tell you two things. First, trust in Jesus' sovereignty. Trust, trust that he is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over his death, sovereign over his resurrection, sovereign over all of history. He is sovereign over this. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus knew that today would happen. He knew the events of today, and he knew precisely how he wanted today to go for you and for me and for all of us. He has demonstrated that he is the God of Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. He is good, and he is sovereign, and he is powerful to lead you through even the worst of situations. Listen, the panic that people are feeling today is because the institutions that they have come to rest and rely on for their goodness and for their health are shown in many nations and many countries and starting in the United States to crumble before them. Now, many of you don't really trust our government, but you trust them at least enough to think that they can keep us safe. And we continually have people talking out of both sides of their mouth at the same time. We trust that hospitals will be there to help us and to heal us. But one of the grand things that are being spoken of here is not so much that this is the deadliest disease to ever been known, but simply that the sickness that's going to happen or could happen could overrun our hospitals and they won't be able to care for us. They turn to technology, and technology was supposed to be a way for us to get easy information. But as it turns out, while that information is easy to access, it's not easy to assess. We have people telling us one thing on one side and another thing on another side, and it creates a sense of panic because all of these institutions that we rely on fail us. This is why people have fistfights in Costco over toilet paper. There are many things to fight about in Costco. Toilet paper is likely not one of them. Okay? They've got really good food there. So the reason why people are panicking is because what they've trusted in is going away. But Jesus is always trustworthy. Always. The church went through the plague. This isn't the plague. Like, no one thinks that this is the plague. Even though the most doomsday people might say this is a modern-day plague, They clearly haven't read about what the plague was. The church went through the plague. It provided assistance and security in people's lives when they had none. That is precisely what Jesus wants to do. Trust in Jesus. He is a mighty fortress. He is good in the storm, and he's always consistent and wise. Trust in his sovereignty. And then lastly, act wisely because of Jesus' sovereignty. Act wisely because of his sovereignty. I'm telling you, many people get confused, especially in times like this, because of God's sovereignty. And they think, listen, if God is sovereign, then what's going to happen is going to happen. It doesn't really matter how I act. It doesn't matter what I do. Whether I wash my hands or not wash my hands, I don't know why I ought to worry about this. 
Why stay indoors? Why use hand sanitizer and any sort of prescribed mechanisms? Because after all, God is sovereign and what he has declared will happen regardless of what we do. And I'm telling you that is not just foolish, it is deceptive and it's satanic. Literally, it's kind of the same thing that Jesus was tempted by through Satan in Matthew. So the second temptation of, of Jesus in Matthew is this from Matthew 4. Verses 5 through 7. The devil took him out to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He said, Listen, if you are the Son of God, and this is what Scripture says, Prove to me that it's true. Prove to me that you're the son of God and prove to me that the word of God is reliable. Throw yourself down and see if this comes true. And Jesus basically looks at him and saying, my job is not to test whether or not that's true. My job is to remind myself that that is true. The sovereignty of God over Jesus striking his foot and not hurting it is not to be tested, right? So to say that something like, it doesn't matter what I do, it's just going to end however God wants it to anyway, is the same idea. You're just testing God to see if he will actually do what is good for you. I will tell you this. I think that the purpose of God's sovereignty in all of this is not meant to reject our responsibility, but to equip it and to justify our responsibility. It allows us to act faithfully and wisely. So many times, too many times, we see our actions solely by the ends that they produce. People say, well, if God wills me to get sick, I'm going to get sick, so why should I worry about it? If God wills me to be well, I'm going to be well, so why worry about it? And their focus is on the outcome of the event. But that's not Jesus' concern for us. His concern for us is not whether we make things so or don't make things so. His concern for us is to be faithful to the commands that he has given to us. We're not to worry about outcomes. That is God's business. We are to worry about how we act in the middle of that business. Yes, if God wants you to get sick, friend, you could go wrap yourself in one of those hazmat suits and walk around Walmart picking up all the hand sanitizer that people have left on the floor that you possibly can get to, and you're still going to get sick. What he cares about is not the outcome, but your faithfulness in it. Notice, in our passage, the passage that we will be preaching on next week, Jesus is trying to comfort his people by showing him that, that he is in complete control over everything that's happening. And the very next thing that we read is him giving them a commandment. Because I'm over all of this, because I am the one who is faithful and true, because I am sovereign and orchestrating all things, love one another. Your responsibility here is not to make an outcome come one way or the other. Your responsibility is to be faithful and true to what God has called you to. And I'm not going to tell you that that's easy. It's just not. Unfortunately, if you looked up in the back of your Bibles, pandemic response, you would find very little biblical instruction about that particular topic. And so there is no one way to act in these situations. You have to apply biblical wisdom. You have to ask God for wisdom. You have to ask your neighbors for wisdom. We have hard days ahead. Whether we continue to be able to meet as a church or not, whether we 
have any sort of functioning economy or not, we face hard days ahead. There will be times when it will be best for you to quarantine yourself because making people more sick and putting more stress on our hospitals and even putting, especially people who have high risk problems, putting their lives on the line is just not worth you going out to Taco Bell. It's just not. So there are times when wisdom would dictate that you stay in. But self-quarantining is also just a wretched thing. We gather together because being together is important. People will be lonely. There will be people who will need aid and need help. There will be people who will need you to go out and get something because they're high risk. And so there will also be times when the loving thing to do for your neighbor is to actually go out. I don't have answers for every single situation you would come into. The Bible doesn't have exact prescriptions for every situation that you're going to come into. But what God wants for you to do is to be faithful to him in all things. Seek wisdom from people. Seek wisdom from scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing this, whether you come out, or whether you, or whether you stay in, or whether you go out, make sure that you do everything that you do for the glory of God. We are... Indeed, going through something that is unprecedented to our times. It's not unprecedented in the history of the world. It's not even unprecedented slightly more than 100 years ago. So it's, we treat this like, oh, this has never happened before. No, it's, it's never happened to you before, but this has happened before. It's unprecedented, yet the church has, and I guarantee you, will face worse. All other institutions may fail, but the church, as the gathered people of Jesus Christ, will always prevail. So let us act wisely in this time, showing the goodness of God all the more because these times are evil. And whatever our lot, whatever God depicts as the outcome for us, whatever our fate, we know that what Jesus desires for us and what he wills will always be well with our souls. Let's pray. Father, may your spirit through your word build us up in trust of Jesus Christ this morning. May we act faithfully in the world, knowing that all things are in your hands, and that you had long ago foreseen and ordained even these things to come to pass. Let us approach these things with faith, and now, as always, watch the good that you will reap from this evil. We ask that we might be equipped for these things for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.